Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hey, 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 hey. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. And yes, I am your host, Rob Watson, and we will be talking to you for the next hour on yet again another fascinating topic. Um, This one is actually really near and dear to my heart. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, a program on this one specifically in the San Diego area, but uh, there are about a thousand such programs throughout the country, Um, and it's a way to advocate for kids in foster care. Um, The organization we're going to talk about today is um, a specific one called Voices for Children, and we're going to be talking to Matt Amorshek, who is a volunteer for that organization as a CASA. Um, Matt has a varied background. Um, he, besides that, he's a professional counselor, coach, and trainer. He specializes in career counseling, developing leaders and managers, and talent development uh, consulting. He is the vice president of um, executive education development at LPL Financial, where he's also the sponsor of their pride organization um, in, in their corporate environment. Um, he advocates also for LGBTQ plus inclusion and volunteers uh, with the San Diego L- uh, LGBT Community Center. Um, so we're anxious to talk to him in just a few minutes, um, and we'll find out more about CASA itself. It is um, a super important program, and uh, uh, we'll get into the details of that in just a minute. Uh, first, I want to bring on my uh, illustrious co-host. Um, the renowned journalist Brody Levesque, who is also the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. Uh, You can find that at losangelesblade.com on the Internet, and you should check it every single day for the latest breaking news um, and fine articles. Um, Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Good afternoon. Hello to all of our listeners. Special greetings to our listeners in the San Diego area, uh, including Mayor Todd Gloria and his staff and Chris Chris and the crew uh, down there as well. So hello, San Diego. Um, Once again, we have another bad week for our trans uh, siblings um, all over the place. Uh, Before I kick off with the news, I just wanted to mention that Research last week um, released the results of a study and a survey that they had conducted last July. Uh, and basically, it had to do over the acceptance of a transgender community in American society. The net result, in summary, is that over 60% of Republicans uh, won't accept trans people no matter what. Um, and that's a considerable part of the U.S. population in terms of voters. Uh, the Democrats uh, actually came in uh, with a you know pretty good acceptance rate. They were also leaning towards 60% of greater acceptance. But the thing of it is, is that in the overall numbers, um, 
in terms of transgender acceptance, you know, the numbers themselves just quite frankly weren't that good at all, period, uh, overall. And, of course, this now speaks to uh, the news pieces that I'm about to share, um, particularly three states. The state of Iowa, the Senate committee today passed through an anti-trans youth sports bill uh, that essentially would restrict transgender women and girls from playing on sports teams that match their gender identity. Uh, friend of the show, personal friend of mine, Democratic State Senator Zach Walls uh, told me in an email after the passage, and I'm quoting Zach, Republican politicians are trying to score political points and pit islands against each other rather than address the real economic issues affecting everyday islands. This legislation is shameful and disrespectful. The other part of it is that the state's led by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, and Reynolds has long been on the record, uh, and the Des Moines Register, as a matter of fact, just reported on, I believe, earlier this week, that Reynolds doesn't believe it's fair to allow transgender women in sports to compete in girls' sports. Um and, and her whole thing is along the arguments that we constantly hearing about um, biological sex, biological gender, and, and that sort of mean. Um, so that's on the ground right now currently in Iowa. Let me skip across the country uh, to Utah. This is even more creative. So what Utah is doing is they have a bill. The trans kids can play sports, the caveat being is if a commission okays the request. So essentially this bill, and again introduced by a Republican state representative, would mandate that trans youth wanting to play on sports teams in the state of Utah that match their gender identity must submit their request to a commission to obtain permission. The commission will be made up of doctors, psychologists, athletic trainers, coaches, other experts. And, of course, given the fact it's Utah, that one's going to be skewed towards, yeah, we don't think you're qualified to play. And that's pretty much the, you know, the way that that one's starting to stack up. Um, and, of course, you know, there are other states where it's an ongoing battle, although I will note that we had a bright spot uh, in the state of Arizona. An Arizona bill that would have essentially done what the other two bills did, well, minus the commission aspect in Utah. But we had a Republican uh, in the Arizona Senate, and he broke with his caucus. And he basically killed the bill. The the bill, which would have been aiming to uh, ban gender-affirming care for LGBTQ youth in Arizona, uh, was dead after State Senator Tyler Pace broke from the party and said, yeah, no, we're not doing this. Um, you know, this anti-trans legislation is unfortunately and sadly uh, what trans people across the United States and indeed across the world are experiencing right now, particularly in the United Kingdom, in addition to what we're dealing with here in the States. Um, there's a lot of animus. A lot of it's unfounded. Uh, and at this point, what we're waiting to see is is where the uh, this week has been anti-trans week. 
Yeah, well, uh, it's, <laughs> it's an anti-trans year. But um, one thing, I, just to put this in perspective, um, and it's not um, a big comfort to the people who are directly involved, like the kids um, who this flies in the face of um, right now, but um, in, in LGBTQ history time frame um, and timeline, we've always started out this way. Um, we've, every issue that's come up over the past few decades has come up where the vast majority of the public was completely against it. There's no way, you know, from, uh, and this goes back to the 80s with um, gay and lesbian employment, where, you know, it was a question whether, you know, people should even have a right to have a job. And then finally the public then went overwhelmingly for, yes, you know, we deserve equal rights in employment. And then the same thing with, with marriage. No, we didn't deserve marriage. No, people are never going to allow it. And now the majority, um, you know, think that that, that is you know, perfectly acceptable. You know, that the minority is always going to be there. But um, the education on, on what it is to be transgender and the challenges and everything else, it has to be done. We have to do that. And, um, you know, this stuff is, is horrible and it's, it's embarrassing and it's um, um, unjust, but it's temporary. And we just have to fight it with education. And this is my, my two cents, putting that into a little bit of perspective. Well, I, again, the, the biggest part of this is that one of the things that's handicapping um, the ability for, I think, a much wider understanding of the issue is the fact that currently the LGBTQ activist and advocacy movement doesn't have a national leader. Uh, the human right. rights campaign has been decapitated uh and has been drawn into the morass of lawsuits and accusations and the back and forth. Uh, GLAD, for all intents and purposes, is useless. Uh, You know, GLAD's whole thing is about media, media visibility, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, oftentimes I actually wonder if they have, you know, any stake in the fight at all whatsoever. Now, the the task force, uh, PFLAG, uh, are, are definitely leading the charge. But the vast majority of the battling in this is left to the Equality Federations and the Centerlink, which is all of the LGBT centers right. across the United States. Um, and they're the ones that have got the shoe leather on the ground and in the fight. Um, the other part of the problem is, is that the administration, quite frankly, uh, for as much talk as the president and his advisors uh, give in terms of the cheering, rah, 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 uh, we're unable to pass the Equality Act, and it's dead. It's, it's, it's forget it. It's not happening. Um, you know, I understand the president's agenda is a little bit wider than that, but he was also elected on the promise that he would do something specifically to help the trans community out, and he hasn't delivered. It's really that simple. Well, he has not delivered. Well, no, it's not that simple because it's, it, it has to do with a bigger issue with this country is that even though the Democrats had this razor-thin, quote-unquote, majority, it was not enough for power. And that's a, a country problem. It's like 
And, of course, with the midterms, we're facing potentially of it going even further in the wrong direction. But we've got to get the country mobilized to get a majority in the government that can pass that. I mean, the, the flip side of that is the Equality Act almost passed. I mean, it, it wasn't like hugely dead and, and, you know, a pariah. It was a barely was defeated. But that barely is where it counts. And there's nothing the president's going to be able to do to change that without Congress being put in place. So that, that's the challenge. And I agree with you on the national organization. We, we really need a, a national organization that refocuses itself because the battle line, the biggest battle line for LGBTQ is the transgender community. And we need yeah, the, that priority put forth and organized. Yeah. And, you yep. know, it's like that, that is, that's what's requiring um, education. But we've been here before. I mean, the Republicans did this with George W. Bush. You know, when he first got elected was they hit us hard across the country with these state constitutional amendments prohibiting um, same-sex marriage, where there was no organization in any of those states to fight it. Um, You know, everybody was blindsided, and the antis got a foot up, but their foot up is not forever. And, um, And I think we have to prioritize because... As, as bad as the trans youth athletic bills are, I think the ones like the one, I forget which state just, you know, has the one going towards uh, trans health care. To me, that's a, a much bigger one because Alabama, not every trans kid wants to go into sports. And, you know, that's a, that's a disappointment, you know, for them on that level. But the health care bill is life threatening and that one those bills are the ones that i think need to we need full guns on you know to to for for our for our listeners uh before we go to our guests i will salutate on the bill rob is referring to there is a senate bill that passed through to the senate uh for a floor vote in alabama that essentially would make treatment of a transgender youth under the age of 18 a criminal offense. In fact, it would be a class three felony. So a doctor or a healthcare provider in the state of Alabama could literally find themselves going to prison for treating trans youth, either through hormonal therapy or other means. Uh, since most minors uh, do not have reassignment surgery for gender identity, basically what this would do is that we would have the trans kids unable to do the hormonal therapy that is required to begin to do puberty blocking and to also go through the first phases uh, of transition. And uh, that bill looks like it will pass. It looks like Governor Ivey will probably sign it. Uh, Of course, obviously, it's going to get challenged immediately. But as a leading activist said to me a couple of days ago, everything these days seems to be Equality by suit, lawsuit. With that, I'll let you. Yep. Uh, well, that's, and yeah, and that's been that's been the case, uh, you know. And unfortunately, with the Supreme Court the way it is, um, we've got to change. <laughs> we've got to change tactics because um, that that probably won't work very much longer. Um, winning by lawsuit. 
Okay, yeah. Let's uh, switch gears over to foster care in the United States. Um, foster care is obviously near and dear to my heart. For anybody who knows my history, um, um, having been a foster care parent and an adoptive parent um, as a result of foster care, um, been very, very involved in in that. Um, the foster care system. Um, come up all the time in the news and, um, you know, different news shows where um, there have been huge, huge failures and children not only are fall through the cracks but are, are severely damaged. Um, one program that was uh, instituted uh, quite a few years ago, I think it was in 19, um, I want to say 1977, um, was, yeah, um, a judge in uh, Oregon, I'm sorry, in Washington, um, desired for kids who are in foster care that they have some sort of advocate. Because what happens a lot of times in foster care is a child is, especially an older child, goes into the system, their parent is neglectful, abusive, drug addicted, etc. Um, the child is put in the system, they go into a home, the foster parents are supposed to advocate for their, their child um, that's been placed with them, but oftentimes the child gets moved, and then they get moved again. And every time they get moved, their case kind of starts over. And, um, you know, they, and for a child, that's devastating. Um, so what um, the judge did was he um, set up a system called CASA, which is court-appointed special advocates who would then be attached to that child, no matter if the child moved, whatever happened, they would be there following them, meeting with them, kind of a big buddy or, or big brother type um, relationship, uh, and um, advocate for them in the system. And so today, uh, we want to welcome to our show um, a volunteer for a, such a program, uh, among other things. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be with you. Yeah, uh, it's great, great having you on board, and um, anxious to hear about your your involvement with uh, Voices for Children. Let's let's take it back though, because your um, your background is education and training and really helping people be their best selves. Um, how, did you, how did you get involved in that path? That's right, yeah. Uh, it's been probably the past, past 15, 20 years really now I've been involved in adult education, uh, training and development and uh, counseling, coaching as well for adults. But even as a, as a youngster myself, as a, a kid, a teenager, I was always involved as a, with youth in terms of uh, being a sports camp counselor, being uh, kind of the neighborhood babysitter. Um, my mom uh, actually ran a child care center, a preschool, uh, and so that was my after-school job uh, working with, the, with youth uh, growing up. Um, so I think kind of my roots in working with kids start there, but certainly that um, I guess it's a value that I have about you know, helping learn, people learn and grow and develop. You know, I've applied that to adults and, you know, love taking that to my volunteer work as a CASA as well. 
Right. Did you, um, as you got involved in that kind of work and ideology, um, did um, sexual orientation, identity, and gender identity factor into that, or was that something later you kind of recognized as as being a factor in people's full potential? You know, I don't think it was a, a conscious choice at first, but now as I look back, you know, I, I can't deny that I think some of the kind of the kind of looking at my sort of psychological history, some of the early t- times when I felt alone or different or uh, kind of pushed aside, you know, I, I think some of those experiences helped me kind of to frame that into something positive where I can, you know, help others feel included, you know, feel a sense of belonging, have kind of somebody that has their back so that they can kind of become their more, more full self, whether that means like coming out as LGBTQ or uh you know, or otherwise. Yeah, no, definitely. I One of the things that you are not only trained in, but um, essentially a master in is um, the Myers-Briggs um, indicator. Um, <laughs> That's right. I have always found fascinating. Um, um, and and <laughs> our listeners aren't probably going to relate to this, but you probably will understand. I am INFJ. Um, is my all right Myers Briggs identity? <laughs> so now you know who you're dealing with. Um, <laughs> uh, th- but I've always been fascinated with that, uh, and what it is for our listeners is, and and Matt, you can actually probably explain this better than I can. But it's a self-assessment um, modality, if you will, based on your human energies and kind of what what helps you thrive as a person in areas of introvert, extrovert, um, uh, intuitive, sensor, a feeler, thinker, um, or J&P, which is, I've always found that one weird because it's like whether you're very organized and like, you know, agendized versus being very free form and, you know, um, come what may uh, type personalities. But it's a it's a way that you identify your personality and your your actually your preferences in terms of of uh, where you thrive, and when you understand what the other person is, it it really does help people understand each other. I mean, is that a fair assessment of it? Yeah, that's definitely been my experience using that tool. I used it for uh, more than a decade at this point. Uh, and I'll tell you, it's a little controversial. Some people love to hate the Myers-Briggs. But in my experience, right. yeah, it, it really has been a useful tool um, to facilitate kind of some introspection, you know, who am I, how am I similar, or particularly how am I unique from in terms of my communication style, how I like to, how I prefer to see the world and uh, make decisions. Um, and it kind of gives people some language to kind of describe uh, to describe who they are, you know, I think it gets a little tricky or dangerous when people try to use that as a tool to kind of impose labels and put people in categories right. or boxes. That's where some folks get a little uncomfortable. But as a tool for kind of self-exploration and looking at communication patterns that are might be similar or different on a team or in a relationship between two people, you know, my experience has been that that can be a really useful tool to open up a dialogue and kind of have some non-judgmental language to 
explore similarities and differences and, you know, really unlock some new ways to try to relate to others. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I mean, it, we as human beings, I think that's one of our greatest failings is, is trying to label people in different ways. And, you know, it's sort of a, a shorthand of, of uh, you know, I, I automatically know everything about you because you are XYZ label and pin it on that. And right. I definitely see how, how those can, can be used in that way. Um, it, although it's, I, I have to, even if, even in that environment, I would rather be labeled with something like that, that has a little more depth to it than a lot of the other labels we choose to, to, to put on, on each other. Um, the w- one thing I wanted to share with you about that though, is um, I have, kept consistent. I've taken the assessment throughout my, my corporate career and everything else, and I was always a very um, I-N, and then my F and T, the feeler and, and thinker, were always exactly on the borderline. If I answered one question differently, I would end up in one of the other camps uh, in terms of the feeler thinker. When I became a parent, when I became a dad through um, – I adopted my two sons as babies through foster care. Um, I all of a sudden, my profile went big time F. I became a big uh-huh. feeler. I was just, you know, so, so that was my way of segueing into our, our topic about CASA. How did you get involved with Voices for Children? Oh, yes. Uh, I love this uh, topic. I'll talk to anybody that wants to know about it, and I I try to talk about it as much as I can. It's been truly one of the best and most meaningful volunteer experiences I've I've ever uh, been a part of. Um, But I moved to San Diego now. It's been about four years ago. Prior to that, I was up in uh, Portland, Oregon, working uh, in education and development for adults in a healthcare setting. Um, And I was working with provider education. So all sorts of healthcare providers learning about different, um, you know, critical uh, competencies to be more effective healthcare providers. And one of those was learning how to be more effective in working with foster care youth and foster families. Um, through that experience, I, I learned first learned about the CASA program. Uh, and, you know, considering my own history with working with youth, I thought, you know, that would be, sure be an interesting way to to contribute, you know, I'd love to volunteer in that capacity some uh, someday. So I kind of flagged it as a future to do, uh, but at that point I wasn't ready to take action. I, I, so I moved to San Diego for a, this job I'm still at with uh, uh, LPL. And what did you know? It was kind of uh, kismet. I came into uh, my local Starbucks and I was ordering my uh, grande latte, and there was a sign right there uh, on the the creamer counter uh, that was an advertisement to become a, a, a CASA with Voices for Children. Uh, and, you, you know, again, it was just like a perfect timing because I was new to town looking for new ways to build relationships and kind of put on put down some roots here in town. And there it was staring me in the eye. So uh, I snapped the QR code and signed up for an info session and the rest is history. That has been about two and a half years ago now. Right. Right. Does the um, CASA system, uh, or, or maybe even the Voices for Children system particularly, um, try to match up uh, 
CASAs with kids that um, are specific identities or have different challenges? In other words, if there's a transgender youth in the system, um, uh, do they get matched with a CASA who understands those issues? Yes, I don't know all the intricacies, but I can tell you that there is a very thoughtful process for each case match that's made. Um, Voices does a great job of uh, kind of knowing both who their causes are and their interests and their backgrounds, and then considering the the needs of the of the youth as well, including their uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, if that's known. Um, you know, and certainly that's been one of the one of the areas that I've requested. I've said, hey, I'd love to have any LGBTQ uh, youth on my uh, caseload. Again, if provided we know that uh, about them. Um, and so, yes, there is an intentional effort to, to match the needs of the youth with a CASA who can, you know, maybe it's part of that background or has special unique skills or training uh, that might be able to better support the youth. Right. Yeah, that's super important. It's one of the things that I actually think about when we hear about these cases of different agencies that um, they, they want federal funding, but they're going to discriminate against LGBTQ families. And yeah. the, the argument and the discussion around that is always around, gee, that's so unfair to the, you know, the gay or lesbian families in those situations that are not eligible to, to have kids come to them from, from that program. But I always think of it in reverse, in that it is a bad situation should one of those kids um, need to be placed with an LGBTQ family, that they're transgender or they're gay or they're lesbian or they're bisexual, and they need um, to be placed with parents who truly understand who they are and, and what it's going through. And it's just, you know, so the, that matchup, um, I think makes all the difference in the world. Um, Matt, can you take us through a little bit of the CASA and the court, you know, how the CASA plays into the child's court case, and, and maybe even explain what a court case is for a foster care uh, child, because a lot of people may not realize that's a big part of it. Sure, you, you bet. And I want to mention, just to kind of backtrack just a little bit, that the uh, you know, in terms of the match with the needs of the case youth, as it re reflects um, LGBTQ youth, I mean, there's a huge need for more CASAs that identify as LGBTQ, uh, as well as men who, who are willing to be CASAs. I think in my, uh, in my training group of about 20, 25 CASAs, I think I was one of three men in the group, and the only one that I know of that identified as, as LGBTQ. Um, so, again, the importance of that, match and having available CASAs who have a background that could be matched with a, a queer youth, I think that's really important. But to your question here about the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, about the interaction with the court. So again, it's a court-appointed special advocate. So in addition to kind of the sort of big brother aspects of the relationship you form with your, with your child, uh, you know, it can... There, there's the, the court side where actually at the end of every court 
reporting period, you're writing a, a report um, that details, you know, your assessment, kind of how, how things are going in the overall picture of this young person. Um, you know, I, I think every provider that provides input uh, into the court uh, process is looking at their slice of the picture, whether it's uh, kind of health or um, their therapy or their independent living skills or whatever it may be. But as CASA, mm -hmm. I get to kind of reflect the whole picture, kind of how the young person is doing as a whole. Um, and what I've actually found is that the report that I write uh, with support of Voices for Children, um, you know, is, is sometimes uh, the one that the, the judge reads first uh, and really can account as kind of their shorthand about how is this young person actually doing and functioning overall. Um, so it feels really important in that way. I would say that's the biggest way that we, we get involved um, is that um, court report. Typically, they're uh, once every six months, sometimes a little bit more often if there's more activity happening. Um, and again, Voices provides a lot of great support uh, for completing those, but that's the primary way that we're involved in the, in the court process. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, and it's so valuable. I mean, it's, um, I saw it from a different perspective because um, when it is not easy being a foster care parent. I'm going to be right up front with that. It is one of the biggest challenges in the world. Um, and that is another area that uh, I love what you said about who needs to be considered to be a CASA because I think you're, you're right on with that, that um, more men and especially um, LGBT, LGBTQ uh, people need to be involved there. Um, but the foster care families and, and couples and people who want to open their homes are also greatly needed. Um, but the thing on being a foster care parent is you have to go in, and in a lot of cases, the process is that the child is removed from the birth parent for some reason, and it's usually a pretty dire dramatic and, um, and, and, I mean, it's not a light situation. Um, and so the, the process in the court is based on the idea of reunification, whether the child will be reunified with that birth parent, which is really what the court hopes ultimately will happen. Um, but the court needs to make sure that the parent does what it takes to be in place to, um, to, to take the child back and care for the child and, and be there for them. So when you go to court, you have, um, and I'll tell it from my own perspective, the first time with my uh, older son, who was a baby, we got him at birth because he was drug exposed in the womb with heroin and um, his birth parents were both heroin addicts. Um, but we walked into court, the birth parents had a lawyer um, court appointed. My baby son had a lawyer, and the state had a lawyer. The people who didn't have a lawyer were the foster care parents. We had no no advocates sitting up there telling our perspective. The only one who really was close enough to talk about us and our relationship with the child was the CASA. And... Um, you know, and to your point, Matt, that's, that's the first, first testimony because 
you really do have the overview of the whole perspective. The CASA would go to the visitations with the birth parents. The CASA would be come to see our home. So even though my child had no idea who the CASA was, she played a big role in, in that, in that uh, situation. Um, what have your observations been about the, the whole court process and your involvement there? Gosh, yeah, I think you, you nailed it. You know, it's seeing that whole process and, um, you know, not necessarily we don't have any uh, – it's not evaluative in nature, um, but you, in some ways you can't help but kind of see what – you're always asking the question, what's going to be in the best interest of the, the youth I'm uh, seeing? But you do, you get to walk into every kind of step of life. And in my case, as most of my youth have been that I've been matched with have been school-aged. And so seeing them in their school context and kind of learning from their school counselors about and their teachers how they're doing in addition to their home life, in addition to their therapy, in addition to their um, uh, what's happening with their, their health needs, you know, you can start to pretty quickly formulate uh, some of these conflicts where everybody's all the all the individual people are doing their best uh, and believe you know they're acting in their best interest of the of the youth, but you notice that some things are in com- uh, in conflict or they might be confusing to the young person. Uh, so you can kind of help. This is where the advocacy comes in. You can say, hey, this doesn't make sense. Provider A is saying to do this. Provider B is saying to do that. And maybe the the, the foster parent or the the, the child's placement doesn't have the adequate resources to get them to do either one of those things. So you're saying, how can we kind of untangle this a little bit um, and so that the youth gets what they need? Um, but that's kind of been a, a, a key, more of an active role that we can play. Uh, it's not only just uh, forming a relationship and doing the fun things with the youth, which we get to do, but it's also, uh, I've been particularly uh, it's been particularly meaningful those times when I've been able to kind of advocate for a certain course of action or a change or a clarification that has made uh, one of my kiddos' lives easier um, or made it make, more, make, made it make more sense. Right. Yeah. No, it's um, – and I, I know in, in the case of my younger son who was a toddler, my my older son we adopted – when he was 18 months old. So he knew knew no different. He didn't, he was completely oblivious to the whole foster care system was going on. You know, the whole, whole thing, we were his parents from the get go, you know, in terms of what he realized and, and um, the CASA was important there, but my (coughs) younger son was a toddler and um, he was actually going on visitations with the birth father and that um, end of the story, that did not end up going well, um, and he went to full adoption as well. But in that course of action, it was really vital with the CASA um, because she was, she did go to the visitations, and you're right, she didn't evaluate them, but she made observations. And those observations were pretty critical to the judge because you don't have to you don't have to put a lot of evaluation. You just have to show what you see. And, kind of like, um, like you see you know, it. Yeah. yeah. And so that, the, that set of eyes there um, was, was invaluable to 
is is ultimate welfare. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, have you seen? Uh, and one thing too, I'm trying to be sensitive of. Um, so that's why I'm not asking you specific because I'm pretty sure that the cases you're on are confidential and you're not absolutely, allowed yeah. to divulge anything about the 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 kids that you're actually actually being accosted for. But um, in general, have you seen kids that have have um, been moved from a couple of homes and what the role that CASA played as somebody had to go through that kind of transitioning? Yes. Uh, yes, certainly have. And as you mentioned earlier, just that, that cycle of new people in and out, um, that's such a challenge for young people involved in the foster system. Um, you know, it could be placement to placement, meaning sometimes they're in a group home or some sort of a residential facility. Other times they're in with a, a foster family. Um, and sometimes those placements don't work out for one of many reasons, and so they're on to the next. And just think about it. Sometimes that's a complete uh, – they could be moved anywhere else in the county, uh, depending on where an, an available, available placement is. And so that means a whole new school district sometimes or a whole new, a new doctor, you know, new providers and all, all sorts of sets. So it really feels like a, a starting over process. Um, and so that's kind of a critical time in our training as a CASA. We learn about those transitions and the importance of really kind of trying to step in, you know, and observe, you know, the full picture as best you can um, as a CASA so that you can start to help make those connections. You know, certainly the social worker is there to help, but social workers have huge caseloads of sometimes 30 or more, you know, youth. Uh, and as a CASA, you know, this is where I have, you know, just one youth that I can focus on and really make sure or do my best to ensure that some, you know, important things get set up again. If they're making progress in therapy, but it gets interrupted by a, a, a placement a move, you know, how can we quickly facilitate them getting reestablished in therapy or make sure that the records get transferred so there's some sort of momentum in that, make sure their individual education uh, plan gets transferred to the new school district so that the new teachers know what their uh, learning needs are so they can get as best they can reestablished in their new school district. But those transitions are really important or really critical times and I think really important times for the CASA uh, to step in uh, as best they can. Yeah, they're super, super important because that, that can be absolutely traumatic for a young person um, that gets up, uprooted, especially if they're in a situation where they're making some progress and all of a sudden the environment um, is changed on them. Um, can you speak to a little bit of the challenge for um, a young teen, um, older child going into foster care versus like the littler ones? Um, I know a lot of foster care parents who are looking towards adoption um, kind of get attracted to the, the, as younger a child as possible because they get to be more influential on the child's whole life. Um, but a lot sure. of kids come in and they're older. Um, what, what have you seen as those challenges? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I think anything is possible. But, again, yeah, as a younger uh, – uh, as an older youth, um, I think sometimes the, there are a lot more barriers or challenges for – Adoption, as you mentioned before, 
typically, uh, you know, they're always looking for reunification as a as a first option, reunification with the uh, with the family, because uh, that's you know typically produces better outcomes for the youth. Um, but when that's not a, an option, you know, they'll look at other other types of placements, whether it's a foster arrangement until they can find a, a an adoptive family, and then some will age out of foster system having, you know, been in foster arrangements the whole time. Uh, most of the, the youth I've worked with have been uh, teenagers, uh, and so I'm kind of familiar with that that side of it a lot more than than the, you know, toddlers or babies, uh, infants. But um, yeah, I think for older youth, first of all, they they kind of know what's up uh, in the sense that they're they're experiencing and seeing all this, and they they quickly learn. Um, you know, I think with especially with all the transitions we were talking about, when the providers in and out, um, it's uh, it's been hard to see sometimes how uh, it, it's tough to establish that relationship at first. I think because they've been sort of uh, desensitized to all the people or sensitized to all the people mm-hmm. in and out. Uh, the, I think the question that they ask when when you meet them the first time as a casa is, "Are you going to be sticking around for a while? Or are you just going to be another one in and out?" And so through mm. consistency, you've got to show that, hey, I'm, I'm planning on being here and, you know, you don't want to be overbearing, but you want to be a consistent person in their lives. Uh, that's what it's all about. And so I think that's been the biggest thing is really trying to go against what they've experienced in the system so far, which is this kind of cycling in and out of people to saying, hey, here's another way, here's another example of somebody who can be consistent in your world, you know, be a safe place for you, you know, try to have some fun. I'll try to make sure your voice is reflected in this process. Uh, I want to know your concerns and your, but also your interests and your desires for the life, you know. Um, Right. So it's being that consistent person, I think, more than anything. Yeah, which is is so huge. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing for a foster care parent as well when, because that's, the one thing I had to learn about being disciplined as a parent was the, the discipline things weren't about punishment and reward. It was about consistency. It was about you know, setting up a routine that was consistent, you know, a life that was consistent that gave the child security. And certainly, you know, for, for their advocacy side of their experience, you know, if that's inconsistent, that's, hugely um, disruptive, um, psychologically, physically, emotionally, everything. So, you know, huge, huge, huge important thing. Um, what would you say to someone who maybe is hearing this for the first time, they've never heard of CASA before, um, what would you say to them in terms of uh, why they should consider being a CASA? And the flip side of that is what self-evaluation would you recommend that person do to make sure that they are equipped to step up to being a CASA? Sure. Those are great questions. So, I mean, in in terms of it, we talked earlier about it being a a shortage of men and a shortage of LGBTQ CASAs, but I also want to say that there's just a shortage in in general. There's a huge need uh, for CASAs in general. So I would encourage anybody who's interested to really give it a strong look in your community uh, or at Voices for Children if you're in the San Diego area. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think generally speaking, if you're the type of person that's looking for, you know, again, this has been far and away the most meaningful volunteer experience. I, I feel like I've had an impact. Uh, you know, beyond that, I know I've had an impact, you know, on the, on the lives of the youth I've been matched with. And so it's very rewarding in that sense. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm just so pleased to have that, uh, have that experience. Um, but if you're the type that's looking for that, looking for kind of ways to create some new meaning in your, in your life, in your career, um, if you're a helper by nature, uh, if you think you'd get along with kids, I think give it a strong look. You know, Voices for also has a, uh, and I think all the CASA agencies will have their criteria for what they're looking for. I mean, in our case, it was a pretty extensive application and vetting process, as you can guess, if you're working with mm -hmm. uh, youth who've had uh, challenges, you know, they want to make sure that you've got a background check and that you're well prepared. They'll walk you through that self-assessment to make sure that this is the right fit for you. But I would say if you have any kind of inkling that you might be interested or this would be a good fit, go check it out. Attend an info session um, is the best way to do it, where you kind of within one hour kind of get a nutshell picture of what uh, being a CASA would be, mean. And I'd say then make it the, the, the assessment, you know, is this for me or not? Yeah, no, that's excellent. And what, what would you – what would you warn people on? You know, it's like, I mean, for yeah. example, one of the things that comes to mind to me is that, it, you know, I would tell somebody who was just going to dabble that, you know, they're just going to try it out or whatever, don't do it. Like, you know, if you're going to do it, you need to walk in there with commitment. Um, and if you're not a person who could commit, don't do it. I mean, that's my opinion. What, what, what things would you have them Yes, consider. I mean, I mean, I think, I think that's really important. You know, I always think about the flip side too. I'm like, I encourage people to get in there and test it out, try it out. You know, we want to be consistent, but at the same time, uh, there are lots we've we've learned in the pandemic. There are so many ways that you can be present in somebody else's life without physically being there. Um, and while it's always ideal, I think in these cost of relationships, it would when we can spend time in person with somebody. Um, you know, I found lots of different ways to advocate it at a distance or to use technology or, you know, one of the biggest barriers I thought of for my own self was when I'm, you know, I'm busy with my full-time job and my life. Am I going to have the time that I can dedicate? I know I care about this, but, you know, will I be able to be that consistent CASA that I aspire to be? And I think, especially with the support of what's called your advocacy supervisor, they're kind of your liaison to Voices for Children. They provide tools and resources and a lot of just kind of personal support. They'll kind of help you talk through that, you know, make sure that right. um, you're meeting the minimums. I think some months meeting the minimums is, is great. You know, you're there, you're consistent, you're kind of doing your, your part. And other months it's really busy. Um, but what I typically find is that people kind of overblow the, the, the weight of this, and they, they rule themselves out too early. Um, and I always encourage people to get a little closer before they rule out this out, because it is a big responsibility, but I think you'll find ways to, to make it work. Um, and uh, But I, I hear you saying, though, you definitely don't want people that are going to be in there just for a moment and then, you know, zip out. Yeah, it's it, – 
and I think I think you're you're making a great point. It's like you know if if you you should check it out. You should should walk through it and you know um, uh, because if if you can find the commitment in, in yourself, it is probably one of the most valuable things that you, that you could be doing. Um, I, I've just known a, a few people who've who've done it who have not been as consistent, and um, that's you know that that's not a good thing. Um, it, it is it's tough. I mean, the the all in involvement in the whole foster care system has its challenges on the one hand, but it also has the biggest, most rewarding uh, potential as well. I mean, adopting my two sons is absolutely the the most important, best, life-changing um, thing that I've ever done in my entire life. And so, um, you know, that to me I is, love that. is the end of it. You know, the, the, Congratulations and, and there thank was, you. Oh, uh, oh no! Thank you. It's, it's they're both 19 years old now, so it's um, you know I've I've got two really fine, upstanding young men that I'm incredibly proud of, that are my sons, and that's our life. And um, you know that that came out of foster care. Um, so it's you know it's it's it is a, a vitally wonderful thing. Um, I would say, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but. If for people who are completely oblivious to the whole system and everything else, but who are thinking eventually they want to start a family, being a CASA might be a good vision point into the whole system to maybe even evaluate being a foster care parent in the future. Would, is that, would you say that's accurate? Or? I, I absolutely do. You know, one of the, one of my coworkers back when I was very first exposed to the CASA program back in Oregon you know, she had been a CASA for a number of years, and she kind of became a I, – I checked in with her before I applied to be one, just kind of, what's your experience been? Do you think I'd be a good fit? And she was – she actually has gone on now to become a foster parent, and that was her step to foster parenting, kind of getting a handle on the systems. And to be frank, that's something that I've considered uh, as well, you know, for the future. You know, foster parenting something that I would be interested in uh, now that I've seen this uh, from my own point, point of view as a CASA. Yeah. Yeah, it's when when you get in the system and you see the kids, and a lot of kids have been through a lot of horrible things, and there are definitely challenges, but there are some, a lot of them are, most of them have such a beauty in them, and to be able to step up and help them through the challenges and get into a really productive life and be somebody, and this is the selfish part, is that when you do that, you are somebody that is vital to them. That they, you, it's a relationship that is unlike any other. It, it is not, you know, temporary. It is, it is a permanent, um, absolutely vital, life-changing relationship. Um, so it's, there's a lot of potential there. Um, I love how you said that about like, seeing, seeing the beauty. Yeah, yeah. They're not their diagnoses. They're not their traumas or their, you know, the reasons that they were removed and all those dramas and traumas are the thing, the kind of the, the reflect the services that are all around them. But there's so much more to who, who these kids are, who a kid is, you know, as Casa, that's kind of what we get to highlight. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, Matt, tell us how people, if they want to get involved, what do they do? 
So if you want to get involved as a CASA, I mean, uh, in San Diego County, uh, you'll look up Voices for Children, uh, and the first stop is their info session. Uh, they, they provide a really clear uh, way to understand kind of what a CASA does and, and then what the, what the steps are to apply uh, and uh, enter what they call advocate universities. So there's pretty extensive training. Uh, and this is where, again, I think if you are already committed, you will uh, kind of find out, hey, this is for me or this is not me by the time you're done with uh, Advocate University. Uh, so, again, the first stop is a, a info session or look up in your local community what the CASA program is there uh, and see about the first steps, which I would guess would be somewhat similar. Um, right. Trust, I would say trust the process, too. Uh, in uh, at, in San Diego County, Voices for Children is online at uh, speakupnow.org. Um, check it out. Yeah, definitely check it out. Um, we're, we're almost out of time, uh, and this is so vital and important. So if, if, you, if we spoke to something that makes your heartstrings go, um, follow it, pursue it. Um, you know, it, it, it means something. Um, and like we both said, it's something that uh, – will change your life. Um, and if you're looking for some purpose, this, this definitely could uh, feed into that and satisfy that. Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. Um, um, you're great, and thank you for everything you do, and thank you for advocating um, for this program. It's been program. a pleasure, Rob. Um, Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, our pleasure as well. And I want to thank uh, Brody for his work, um, not only on this show, but also on um, the Los Angeles Blade magazine. You can find that in hard copy around the Los Angeles area as well as online, losangelesblade.com. Um, and for us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week with another really fascinating, exciting, mind-blowing show, and I have no idea what it's going to be, except that I know that it will fulfill every one of those adjectives. Um, our pleasure to be here. Please tell your friends to subscribe. Um, we love you. And, um, again, Matt, thank you for joining us today. And really best wishes in your work. It's um, super, super exciting. And um, that's it for us, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.